Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that the Other People podcast is entirely free. Nearly 500 episodes and counting, all available free of charge. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. So what does this mean? It means that the Other People podcast is a listener-supported program. And uh, if you would like to support the show, if you would like to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, support the work that I do here, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to have you here. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and I'm very pleased to announce that Alex Gilvery is my guest today. He's got a new novel out called Eastman Was Here. Available now from Viking. Alex Gilvery, Eastman was here. It happens to be the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It's been around for more than a decade. Can you believe that? And uh, it has its own monthly book club. If you would like more information, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. Get more information. It's a very simple operation. Basically, you sign up, you get a book every month. You read the book. I interview those authors on this program so you can uh, listen and then read or read and then listen. And it's a very nourishing cultural experience. So uh, it's weird in America. I think especially in America, there is this pervasive feeling of not being enough, not having enough, lacking something fundamental, feelings of guilt, low self-esteem, low self-worth, compare and despair, all that kind of stuff, which I don't think is necessarily the case in other cultures, tribal societies, what have you. And uh, find myself, you know, I'm doing this show, I'm working this nine to five, I'm raising my family, I'm worried about the fact that I'm not reading and writing enough. And uh, it's just, it's gnawing at me. And then I can stop sometimes and I can say to myself, well, look, you know, you can't do everything. You got to have some balance. I I can't work every second of every day. 
It's like, what, you know, when is it enough? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, where do I find the sweet spot? I think a lot of people go through that. I'm interested in the idea of uh, cultures where guilt and uh, the sort of thing that I'm talking about is not pervasive. Because they do exist. I mean, it's not, no, obviously no culture is perfect. It's not like there's an, an absolute absence of this kind of thing. But I think it is unique to America. At least uh, at this level of intensity. I could be wrong. I haven't been to every country. But, you know, all of this, like, I got to go to the shrink. I got to take these pills. Got to drink this juice. Got to meditate. Got to do this. Got to do that. Like, you know. I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. <laughs> it's a poem by Jules, uh, Jules Pfeiffer. I think it's a poem, or it's just like a funny quip. Self-loathing. Criticism of self. It's a weird thing when you stop and think about it. I mean, you know, a little bit of healthy criticism is a good thing. You want to hold yourself to account. Guilt, guilt can be useful. I mean, if you truly do something hurtful to somebody and you feel guilty about it, that's a good thing. And hopefully that uh, discomfort motivates you to not repeat the behavior. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this other thing. This kind of wallowing or this kind of self-obsession. This kind of never-ending feeling of not being enough. How do you rid yourself of that? Maybe, I mean, you know, that's the quandary. I want to walk the earth. I want to live among tribal societies. I want to learn their secrets. If there are secrets to be learned. Like Jane Goodall, just live in the woods and hang out with chimpanzees. But then again, like chimpanzees sort of freak me out. These things are vicious. Gorillas are better. I like gorillas. Chimpanzees, though, like you've I've seen uh, stuff in the news where like a ch you know a chimpanzee attacks you, eats your face off. I mean, these things are vicious. And, you know, you see uh, baby chimps in the movies and whatnot or on TV and they're wearing diapers and it's all very cute. That thing grows up. Look out. I'm not trying to demonize chimps. I think you should protect the chimpanzees. You know, I'm, I'm pro-chimpanzee. The level of nature. I just don't want to mess with them, you know. I don't need to have contact. I don't need, I don't, I don't need to go see the gorillas. I just want to know the gorillas are there. Leave the gorillas alone. There's like one spot in like Rwanda where these things can live. They're all under threat anyway. They got people like going on like uh, tourist trips, like traipsing through the jungle. And I guess maybe this helps to raise uh, awareness or whatever, but just leave them alone. What the fuck am I talking? <laughs> what am I talking about? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, Alex Gilvery and I had a good conversation. It turns out he's married to Alexandra Kleeman, who's also been on this program. It's a small world, the literary community. It's like three degrees of separation from, every, uh, from everyone, it feels like. But uh, delightful conversation with both of them. Now I have both of them uh, on the record on this program. It's a matter of uh, literary history. So Eastman, uh, Eastman Was Here is the name of the novel, the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This is my conversation with Alex Gilvery. I wasn't surrounded with books as a kid. You know, my, my dad worked in government. Even though my mother worked at a college, she was more in... Um, administration so uh i just found i gravitated towards the library a lot you know i liked i liked the fact that i could go there and leave with a bunch of stuff for free <laughs> like a, just a stack of books i just liked the act of going to the library it was quiet i would read there so i think i developed my love of reading early on but i didn't discover um my love for the novel until much later till i was like in college so what, what kind you know, of the, what kind of kid were you? Were you a happy kid? Were you, like were you, it sounds like you were quiet. Yeah, I was quiet, but I was a happy kid. You know, I was funny. I had I had friends. Um, I had a pretty good time. You know, childhood is can be rough, but as far as mine went, it was like right in the middle. Could be a little a little rough, and but uh, also very fun. What what was rough? Well, you know what I think was rough? Um, growing up on Staten Island was just a very white place, and I, I was half Asian, so people didn't really know what to make of me. Um, so just just in that sense, I think, um, you know, uh, there were times didn't feel accepted or uh, people just think you were Chinese, make fun of you, that kind of thing. Um, right. You know, I grew up with that. My sister and I both. Um, but... Uh, I would say that that was probably good for us too. So, what was your ethnicity? Like, which which of your parents is uh, Asian? Oh, my mother is Asian. She's from the Philippines, um, and uh, she came to New York uh, probably around when she was like twenty three, twenty four, in the seventies. And my dad is white. He's from Long Island, so um, kind of a mixed race uh, family. My sister and I. And uh, do you have dual citizenship? No. No, I don't. Okay. But the Philippines is pretty – I've been there a couple times. It's pretty lax. So, uh, 
I think if I wanted to live there and work, I could probably make it happen. I don't know if you. I feel like I feel like it's 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 pretty uh, pretty crazy over there right now. Or at least oh that, yeah, Duterte. Yeah. How do you pronounce his name? Duterte is that? Yeah, it? I think it's Duterte. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a maniac. Yeah, he's a complete. Uh, he makes Trump look sort of uh, calm and like sedate. Right. <laughs> I know. I know. It's also like yeah. Actually, I haven't been back to the Philippines since Duterte has been in power. I just don't think it's a safe place to go. Um, well, it's, it's right weird. I was, I was having a, I was having like a, a mild argument with my mother the uh, like just yesterday because I was talking to her on the uh-huh. phone. It's like trying to like organize a trip. It's a long story, but basically, I had a trip planned this summer mm-hmm. that I had to cancel, and now I have to reschedule it. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out when we're going to go and where we're going to go. And my mom's like, "Don't go out of the country. It's not safe." <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you just, I'm, 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 and meanwhile, she just got back from Canada, which of course is not a dangerous place to go, but I'm just like, mom, they're right. like, I could, I'm safer in Germany than I am in the United States of America statistically. Like, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not even a question. Like it really is the truth. And so I was like, what, what are you, where are you getting this information that I shouldn't be traveling right. out of the country? Right. I feel like all the moms talk because my mother's the same way. It's like mom logic, like don't leave the country. Yeah, you know, it's, no, like it's my, really bad out there. My dad logic is like, please get out of here. Like, go, yeah. <laughs> go somewhere, go somewhere sane. Go to like New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife and I, we just got back from Italy this summer, and uh, oh, I want to move there. Where did you go? There for two weeks. We went to the uh, sort of traveled the north. We we spent our honeymoon. Uh, finally, we we got married a year ago. We just took our honeymoon in uh, Cinque Terre on the north, uh, sort of northwest coast. And then, sure. and that was our first week. And then the second week, um, my wife, her name's Alexandra Kleeman. She's also a writer. And her book had just published in Italy. Oh, I've, ta- I've, ta- I've talked to her for this show. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, she was wow. in my, uh, she, I, I sat down with her in my old uh, filthy garage. So look oh. at that. I had no idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, yeah. She's in the other room right now. Oh, um well. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, she, her book just came, her first novel came out in Italy. And so we went to Milan, Turin, um, Florence, just a couple, uh, you know, cities in the North on a little book tour that she had. And it was amazing. That sounds great. Yeah. And the publisher paid for it. Her publisher did. Yeah. Um, her leg of the trip, I just sort of tagged along. I paid my own way. Well, that's um, fine. Yeah, they did. They're this great publisher, uh, Black Coffee Editions, and they're like uh, just a, they're a new uh, a new press in Italy. Very young couple. Um, this is two this married couple, and they're just publishing uh, books uh, translated from English, and I think primarily American fiction. So uh, she was their first author uh, that they published, and I think they now have four, but. It's a great press. If you speak Italian. I was going to say. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, uh, yeah. give her my best. That's, a, that's such a small world. Literary world. It's a small, little, uh, it's a small little bubble. It is. It is a little bubble. So I was having this thought this morning. Uh, you were talking about traveling, and I was like, I was thinking to myself, like, I want to spend my summers in a place that have brutal, like really brutal winters. Like this is just a the- uh, this is just a theory that I concocted that like if you could ever get to a time in your life where it was logistically possible to summer in places where the winter is especially harsh that it's probably mm-hmm. a good place to be because the people like appreciate the warm weather more and like the 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 energy is higher and the happiness level is higher. That's a good theory. I I haven't thought of it that way. Um 
I I did experience that when I went to Norway, because um, don't they have like six months of winter and darkness? Yeah, and then they have a couple months of it's all very sunny and beautiful, and they were nice. No, I was Where are you thinking of going? Uh, Norway, actually. I'm going to go as far north. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to La- I'm going to go to Lapland where there's uh yeah. you know uh, reindeer and. But I don't oh, know. Yeah. I was just in Minnesota, and I think that's part of what had me thinking of it because I was like, "Wow, it's just so lush and beautiful, and everyone's all like, uh, you know, kind of sort of Scandinavian and like super nice and smiley." And I'm just like, "But, oh, yeah. but then you get to the winter, and I feel like, uh, you know, you have to things have to take a turn. There's no way they can sustain oh, this." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Get away from me." <laughs> Uh, so, okay. So you, we were talking about your sort of, uh, literary development or whatever as a kid and how you were a, li- yeah. you were a library kid, but then like, what about adolescence, high school? Like what kind of kid were you then? Yeah. You know, um, oh, adolescence, high school. I think that's, you know, I think, um, the fir- I remember the first two years of high school, I was still a library kid because none of my friends were in my lunch period. And I remember this. So. I wasn't going to sit in that lunchroom at one of those big tables alone. And I found that trying to make friends in that uh, just, you know, gauntlet of kids was not, was too crazy. So I remember just every day having my lunch in the library, you know, reading or sort of starting some version of a story or poem. So that's one of my first two, two years of high school. And I guess I came across a lot of, uh, a lot of books that I liked while I was there. And then, um, and then I sort of grew out of that and, uh, you know, um, became a little more active and, uh, you know, had friends who played in bands and was really into music, tried to teach myself guitar in high school. How did that, um, how did that go? Oh, terribly. I mean, <laughs> I loved going, <laughs> I loved going out to shows, but I could never sort of, I wasn't good enough to play with other people, but I loved being around it anyway. You know, I had my girlfriend at the time, I remember she played in a band. It was really cool. And actually Staten Island had like this little, um, sort of a, a very small, um, music scene. Um, uh, I mean, of course we had like the Wu-Tang clan, but that was a little before my generation. Um, but there was sort of like an indie rock scene here, um, that would event some of the bands would play in Manhattan and, that was another good thing of being here is that you would go to Manhattan for shows. Um, so it was much more about music when I was a teenager, but isn't it for everybody? It's a little more, I feel like that's, well, I was going to say, I was trying to diagnose from a distance here. Like I was thinking like, wow. So, you know, beginning of high school, like the very dawn of adolescence, you kind of like took this inward turn and you were like reading, reading novels in the library, which I think is actually like a, a, that actually speaks well of you. Like anybody who reacts to the dawn of adolescence by taking to the library to read books, like that's very, uh, I don't know what I did, but it certainly wasn't that. Yeah. And then, yeah, I find all the people who did that seem to have turned out pretty well. <laughs> right. <laughs> more, like, like basically the more, the more time you spend in the library as a child, the better your odds of having like a well-adjusted adulthood would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so wait a minute. And the Wu-Tang clan is from Staten Island. Yeah, they're from Staten Island. In their songs, Shaolin is uh, what they refer to as Staten Island. They refer to Staten Island as Shaolin. And uh, they're they're kind of – a few of them still live out here. I don't like to see them in the grocery store. Right here, but they're, um, I, know, I know a few do still live out here. Maybe like – I don't think Method Man lives here anymore. But he's from Staten Island. 
actually, I used to work in a music store in the mall um, when I was a senior in high school, and Method Man would come in, and all the uh, a couple of the Wu Tang members, RZA. That was cool. Damn, I had I thought, I always had them pegged as being from some other part of New York. Yeah, well, Old Dirty Bastard, who was one of the most famous ones, was from Brooklyn. So there are a couple members that were from like Brooklyn or the Bronx, um, but the majority of them were from here. But of course, they had like twelve people in their uh, group. So let's talk about you in uh, high school. You do you spoke about this a little bit earlier with regard to your identity and your ethnicity and how that could make things difficult. Um, did that did, did that sort of thing persist as you got into high school? Like, or is that more of like a, I feel like younger kids like might be crueler or more, um, you know, brazen in terms of what they say. And then as you get to high school, that sort of goes subterranean or did it continue to be that way for you? Yeah, no, it sort of went uh, subterranean. That's a good, that's a good phrase. Um, it didn't, it didn't really continue. Um, you know, as far as the, I think little kids can be cruel because they don't know, you know, very much yet. They're testing boundaries. Um, but I didn't experience, um, you know, much discrimination, uh, you know, when I was in high school, but also because I, I am mixed race. So I'm like, um, you know, I, I sort of I feel like I started to look more just white as I got older, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, no, uh, that's funny. It, you know, I haven't talked about this in a long time, but as I remember it, um, there wasn't too much conflict with me in high school. Um, I went to an all boys Catholic school, which was a big mistake. I regret it. Did you have, um, did you have a say in the matter? I did, you know, and this was my choice. Um, but basically because you're 13, you're an idiot and you're just going where all your friends are going to school. For some reason, everybody was going to this all boys Catholic school. Um, I still regret it, but, um, <laughs> um, well, I regret it for many reasons because it just wasn't a good school and didn't have like great college, uh, you know, prep, um, now that I'm a teacher, I ended up teaching at so many colleges like Wesleyan and uh, uh, a few others that I had never even heard of when I was in high school. I would have loved to have gone to these colleges, but, you know, I just went to this kind of sucky high school on Staten Island. Um, anyway, all boys high school, very aggressive. A lot of fights, a lot of stuff going on. I was never a part of it. I feel like I was right in the middle. I was kind of a nerd, too. But the jocks got a kick out of my antics, and I had a lot of nerdy friends. So I was sort of like right in the middle. I feel like I hear that a lot in turn when I talk to people, and I'm talking to like writers about their adolescence. Like maybe it's a function of, of being uh, adept with language or just like some sort of survival skill. But I feel like they often yeah. they're, they're rarely like the they were rarely like the, the best athletes in the class. But they right. they always uh, often manage to survive socially like through their yeah. wits or whatever. Yeah, we do. We're, we can talk our way out of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can write, uh, you know, write papers for hire, for <laughs> kind of the jocks, you know, <laughs> so we're, uh, yeah. Well, and what about, and what about the Catholic element of your, uh, of your education? Like, did that take, are you still a Catholic? No, I am a very much a lapsed Catholic. Um, it didn't take. In fact, I was sort of, 
I sort of found it sort of ridiculous that I had to attend religion class every every week, every year for four years. And, um, you know, it would be taught sort of as like history to us. And I was very questioning of all of this stuff. And, uh, um, I think, um, you know, I mean, my parents are still Catholics now. I, I totally respect their choices, but, um, it just wasn't for me. You know, when you're brought up with a certain religion, it's just not your choice. You know, you're just kind of born into it. And then once you sort of start to form your own personality and your own beliefs, you gotta, you know, you gotta make a hard decision there. So what do you, what do you, where are you at now? I'm at sort of, um, I don't know, you know, I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm an agnostic, you know, um, I, uh, I'm not really too concerned with, with religion, although I, you know, I like to read about it and, um, but, um, I kind of stay away from it. What do you, what do you, what do you find yourself like? Cause I was thinking, I was thinking about this, uh, mm-hmm. or talking to somebody about this the other day, like the things that you, you sort of take in most easily, the things that you, uh, you know, I guess like the, the kinds of things you read, the kinds of things you watch, the kinds of things you think about most effortlessly, like you just go to them. Is there, are there like a small mm-hmm. handful of things that you find yourself coming back to over and over again, like topics or like, are you in deep into history or deep into politics or, do you like to read about religion but not engage in it or you know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, you know, I do have those I do have those things that I always come back to. Um I would say, you know, as far as topics, I always come back to reading about New York City. I th- I guess I always wanted to be a New York storyteller, like a New York um New York writer. And so I always return to books like The Power Broker by Robert Cairo, you know, just, just books that sort of just tell me how this place where I live was sort of, uh, was sort of built. And then, um, now that I live back on Staten Island, I'm much more interested in the history of this place growing up here. I couldn't care less about it. I just wanted to get out, but now I find myself visiting kind of like the Staten Island museum and trying to figure out like, uh, you know, uh, what all these strange, uh, blocks, uh, you know, why were they built? Why were they organized? I'm, uh, I guess I'm also fascinated by cities. I like to read about cities, architecture. Yeah. Just like what, like the architecture itself or just like the, the whole thing, like how they were formed and the whole thing, um, you know, how they were formed, how they were formed and, uh, who the, who the primary people were behind, um, this, the cities. Um, but you know, this does relate to writing. Uh, I guess all the topics, I will go return to, um, I'll return to them because there's, there, there might be more of a story there. I might fall upon a story, you know, that I could turn into a, a novel or a short story. So, um, I like reading about architecture because it sort of informs the way I might describe something in the future. You know, okay. I guess it's like a writer, you know, you're always looking to steal something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I've, yeah. I've talked about this before uh, with with people on this show about how different disciplines can inform the work. Mm. So something that might seem like unrelated actually has a lot of relevance when you're thinking aesthetically about fiction or how a book is structured, for example. And then you you're you're reading about architecture. It might give you ideas, you know, or it just might give you language ideas. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you uh, it gives you both maybe ideas. Um but certainly the language and um, 
you know, the language ideas, the way to talk about, talk about them. I didn't, um, you know, I actually, I keep, uh, I've written, I've only written two novels, both of which take place in New York city. And, uh, I, uh, I keep an AIA architecture guide of New York city, um, you know, on my shelf because it has all the, um, all this great writing about famous buildings around New York city, including the neighborhood I live in now, or some that I uh, might set a uh, particular scene in. And I use that sometimes if I'm a little stuck trying to figure out how something looked like, uh, looked in, you know, maybe in the past, yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, like because getting to uh, your novel, Eastman was here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're working uh, in period. You know, this book is uh, unfolding in the 70s, mm-hmm. and so that required a certain amount of research and a certain amount of attention to detail. Like, what was that process like? Trying to write out of your uh, time period and trying to get uh, to get it rendered in a way that was uh, or that is believable. Yeah. Um... You know, uh, as far as as far as the research went, I you know I think I began with like just consuming all of these books written in the seventies and in the sixties, um, primarily like novels. Like because, what? Um, like what? Um, I read. Uh, I, I guess I read a couple. Uh, I returned to a couple Saul Bellow books, um, some Philip Roth. This also has to do with the type of character, you know, I was creating uh, some Norman Mailer nonfiction like uh, Armies of the Night. Uh, that uh, part of that takes place in New York City and then part in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and I just wanted to figure out, like, oh, how do they write? Um, how do they write these settings during that time? And they're actually not very different. Um, than now, you know, it hasn't changed that much. You you just say, you just saved me a lot of work. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I did find was, uh, there was a different type of language back then, several words that are no longer used now. And, and I think that was, that's what I was looking for because those words that were more popular back in the sixties and seventies to describe something that might, um, that would add my texture, you know, to, uh, to the, um, the you know t- to making this feel like it was 1973 and I, I i hope it's successful i mean well so what were some of these words oh man um i don't know think about it uh well start on the first page um of the book uh the uh the the, the narrator uses the word um it was the year of the polymorphous perverse um i had never heard that term until I came across it in a Norman Mailer book called The Prisoner of Sex. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I feel like that, uh, I think that term relates to uh, Freud, but um, who was probably more popular in the 60s and 70s than he is now. Um, and uh, I think a term like that just would place you back a couple decades, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, and you just made me think, like, you talk about Freud and how much uh, of an info, you know, an impact he had on our culture. And then uh, yeah. there was like uh, you know, something I read online or something about how uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, like his funeral was attended by like something like a half a million people like flooded the streets. Oh my and, God. and so you think like, wh- who's the who's the equivalent of such a person today? Like who 
what intellectual is having an impact on our culture in any kind of similar way? Like, I don't know if, if there is a parallel. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to find one, isn't it? Um, sort of depressing. You know, it's like Doctor Phil, it is. <laughs> like uh, Doctor Phil, Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I couldn't find it. Some people do ask me. They're like, because um, uh, this this uh, Eastman was here. Eastman is sort of like a an American author, also a cultural critic, kind of like Norman Mailer. You know, who are the author cultural critics of today like like we had back in the 50s 60s 70s and um it's hard to peg that like i don't i don't know who it would be i think just the media has changed so much that those people don't really exist right now well and that's that that's the thing though is that i feel like your novel can be read as a kind of um, swan song for a certain kind of Amer- <laughs> for a, a, a certain yeah. kind of American writer. It's like this. Uh, a couple of people. I mean, Norman Mailer comes to mind because you yeah. know he was such like the macho. Like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna punch you, and like he's just sort of like, you know, often um, misogynistic and whatnot. And then I also think of mm-hmm. this of the Saul, Be- uh, Saul Bellow novel Herzog. Yeah, uh, which yeah. you know, I see a lot of I see a lot of parallels between Eastman and Herzog in terms of like oh. w- their station in life, you know, and like what kind of things they're dealing with. Just a person in yeah. cri- just a, like a, a man of a certain age having a yeah. certain a certain kind of crisis of identity. Right, right. Uh, the hysterical male, as Gary Steingart has uh, coined it, <laughs> and uh, Herzog, that, that's actually, that reminds me, that's one of the books I read while I was writing this, and I think that might have been written in the 60s uh, also, um, or 70s, and um, that's, a, that's a very good read, because, yeah, I mean, um, I, really, I really like Herzog, and uh, uh, that book is great, it's just so much of it takes place in his head. And so I wanted to write a book like that where, where a lot of it takes place in the character's head. And, you know, looking back to all those memories where he was a, you know, like a big shot, uh, macho kind of person who was revered. And, uh, and these characters, yeah, they're like, um, they were on their way out then I would say, you know? Um, and, uh, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you yeah. mean? You mean like the mailers and the, and the bellows of the world? Yeah, I mean, um, they, you know, they were, you know, it's at this time where um, people are just becoming more uh, aware of equality. The woman, the women's movement um, is on the rise. I think Mailer was very threatened by that, um, and those uh, those things ended up lasting. Uh, much longer than these writers did. Um, they were they were sort of stuck in their their certain ways. Um, much more maler than I think Saul Bellow. Yeah, you know it's funny because like I, it, it makes me think of Kurt Vonnegut and reading something he wrote. I think in some of his nonfiction mm-hmm. where he basically said uh, pretty accurately. He said, "I'm part of the generation. Uh, I'm the last generation of of, of fiction writers who's going to be able to actually make a living doing this. Like it's a we're a dying yeah. breed. So, I think mm-hmm. he, you know, you could see, you could say that maybe they were aware of their uh, rapidly advancing extinction or something. Uh, you know, and kind <laughs> yeah. of and and not not just as uh, 
you know, not not just as uh, privileged white males, but also just as uh, writers of fiction, period, as like the, the, you know, the art form moved from a more central location in our culture in, say, the, you know, early to mid 20th century and then yeah. faded out during the second half. I mean, that would have to be hard, especially if you had had a taste of a time when you could get paid like a living wage to write short stories for the Saturday right. Evening post or whatever. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think Vonnegut was somebody who, I mean, he, he only died maybe within the last decade. Right. And so he was writing throughout that entire time as a change where I think he couldn't really make a living, um, just doing, um, just writing fiction, uh, you know, yeah, he, I mean, he supported his family that way. It's it's like unthinkable. You know? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is unthinkable. But somehow when I got into writing, I believed it was still possible, um, which is a crazy, crazy idea. And I know better now. Uh, and that was the one of the reasons I went all in on uh, novel writing, even for uh, maybe a year or two. I tried to sustain myself just writing fiction um, and I found it to be very stressful, almost impossible for me to, to, to do and continue on like that. And that's where I sort of switched gears and started teaching a little bit on the side too, which I do a lot now. Well, I mean, I think you have to have a certain belief. Like if you're going to go into this and, and do the work, I think you have to believe it's possible. Otherwise, yeah. how do you get up in the morning and even put pen to paper? Uh, but yeah. it's, it's definitely a different set of circumstances. And I guess like, you know, you're a guy who's well-read. You're a guy who has loved books from a young age, and I'm sure you have your hero authors. Um, but mm -hmm. I'm sure you also, uh, especially as somebody who comes from a mixed-race background, um, you know, you uh, have a sensitivity to and an awareness of how, uh, especially in, in decades past, um, you know, the entire game sort of set up to cater to white male writers. And, you know, these guys, like the, the American Literary Lion... Um, if you, if you, if mm -hmm. you were to somehow find a way to make a list of people mm -hmm. who have been, uh, bequeathed with that particular, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, designation, you know, mm -hmm. it, it would be a, a pretty white group of men. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. like Eastman was here just strikes me as you grappling with that and, and, um, like, is it something that makes you angry? Is it something you wanted to kind of poke fun at? Like, do you feel yourself uh, bristling at, like, the ridiculousness of it? Because I can find myself, for example, mm -hmm. like, you, you read old interviews, you know, uh, like, forget about the books, but when you read media that, like, Norman Mailer was doing um, back in the 60s and stuff or whatever, like, sometimes you mm -hmm. can you can sort of just, like, find yourself, like, rolling your eyes and laughing. It, it, oh, yeah. It can, be, oh, like, yeah. it can be absurd. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh, I think I was sucked into writers like this initially, uh, probably when I was a younger guy, um, you know, drawn to writers like Mailer, Philip Roth, John Updike, um, their, their fiction first. And I, I enjoyed it. It was entertaining. Um, then I wanted to read more broadly and I saw the limits of, uh, these kinds of like white male uh, writers who primarily write about marriages, <laughs> um, <laughs> plural and uh, <laughs> plural. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I realize its limits at the same time. It's kind of like a love hate relationship. Like I, I, I like, I like these kinds of books, uh, so much, but, 
in the same way, I don't think they're very, uh, very diverse. Um, and so this book, I wanted to engage with my feelings towards it, what I really liked about it and where I think it was definitely wrong. Um, uh, particularly with, um, uh, Eastman's view on, uh, women writers, um, which was a view I think that was shared by Mailer and maybe a whole host of other um, uh, white American authors uh, of the past. Um, Yeah. I was just going to say, I feel like I can see, at least in social media, which is like where a lot of the conversation happens, but I do think it's Mm -hmm. like an, it's an indicator of where things stand. And certainly over the past decade, uh, especially as social media has, you know, its roots have sort of uh, grown and more and more people are involved in the conversation. I think you get a more accurate picture of, of how things are unfolding broadly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not that it's not that we've reached the finish line or the mountaintop or whatever, but I feel like things no. things are definitely changing for the better in terms of um, you know publishers recognizing that there is a uh, uh, an imbalance. You know, or, yeah. or am I am I am I miss uh, am I miss uh, apprehending that? Like, you know what I'm saying? No, I, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think um, it's not over yet, but we're we're working towards. Um, uh, I don't know, fixing the right word is, but fixing that imbalance and uh, making it a little more equal. You know, um, uh, in all sorts of in all sorts of ways. Um, I'm still. You know, I've noticed in me while I was writing this book, I would look across my bookshelves and I would just see all these all these male authors. And I I, I noticed that I gravitate towards um, male writers. Uh, and so that that was a problem in my own book buying, which I'm, I'm trying to correct now, too, is like I, I got to read more women. You know, um, I didn't even know. I didn't even notice it uh, until maybe about five years ago. Um, so it's, you know, within the, it's systematic, it's part of the publishing industry, but it's also within all of our, uh, habits too, that we sort of have to change a little bit, you know? Well, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think that it's natural, especially as a younger person to, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to, you're going through puberty and you're trying to figure out, uh, who you are and like what it means to be a man or a woman. It seems, it seems yeah. like you would naturally gravitate to writers of your own gender. Uh, right. You know, right. like it doesn't seem crazy, but I do think that it's a mistake to stay there. Yeah. I, I that's, that's a, per, that's perfect. Actually. I think that's exactly, uh, uh, the way I was, the way so many of us are, you know, you're looking for the answers as you're growing up, you know, you're coming of age as a person and as a reader. And so, yeah, you will gravitate towards, um, you know, people of your own writers of your own gender, but, um, yeah, to stay there, uh, would be a mistake. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm thinking too of, um, you know, Eastman was here and how it plays with this idea of white male privilege. And I think about, especially like people of Eastman's generation, but also people, of my, my generation and your generation. I mean, this, this does persist is mm-hmm. that, you know, there are, how am I, how am I going to put this? Like when you are born into a world and into a uh, society that confers privilege upon 
uh, white people and especially white male people, mm -hmm. you can get into a mode of being where you, it's sort of natural to expect that the systems of the world, be they occupational or um, whatever, are going to sort of cater to you. It's a very, it can be very subtle, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I could see mm -hmm. how when somebody who has fall, you know, become very comfortable within that system is suddenly confronted with um, the beginnings or the middle or the end of its disintegration. Um, mm -hmm. It can be mm -hmm. uh, a jolting. And I, I think too, that like, uh, I don't know, there, there's something like, like misogyny or um, it's not always just overt misogyny of the kind that you might see from Norman, mm -hmm. Norman Mailer at, at, at his most boorish. It can exist. Mm -hmm. It can exist as a blind spot and, you know, as a big blind spot that's born of comfort and, you know, just, uh, it's like a systemic thing and it's an outgrowth of being born into, into a certain kind of privilege and coming to expect it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it can be a blind spot. Uh, and it's not, it's not as overt, uh, anymore, as you say, like Mailer and his most boorish, um, I still see it all the time as a writer in this industry. You know, I see um, also in academia, you know, I see sort of male uh, teachers, writers sort of um, taking ownership over, uh, you know, female students who are sort of like who become successful. You know, they'll come out and say uh, – maybe do a Facebook post about how like, Oh yeah, she was my former student. You know, once, a, <laughs> once a book takes off, like I had taught her everything. And I'm like, this is so revealing of you, but I, I do see it a, a lot. And sometimes I'll say, well, would you do that with a male? You know, would you, uh, maybe, maybe they would, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times it's like, Oh, it, it, it's to flatter one's own ego. It's like, I was the mentor and they were the, uh, yeah. the student and they're part now of my like success tree. They're another branch on my, like, you know, ego tree or whatever. Right. But right. There, I think there also is something, uh, there is such a thing as like genuine pride in like the success of one's student. I think it's all about tone maybe, or like absolutely how, how lengthy, yeah. how lengthy the Facebook post is. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's all, yeah. It's all about the, the tone. I, I have students now too. I get very, very proud of, you know, I want to be at their book parties, uh, when their book comes out, you know, I want to, I want to take part in it too, in a celebratory sort of way. Well, it's funny. I, uh, I was on Twitter the other day and mm -hmm. I forget, I forget the context. I don't know if it was somebody responding to one of my tweets or I think it was, but it was a, it was a white guy and he basically, he looked like he was about, you know, late twenties to mid thirties maybe. And he was saying like, mm -hmm. uh, I feel like publishing, you know, doesn't have an interest in white guys from suburbia writing anymore. Like, am I a dinosaur? Mm -hmm. and he was like, kind of like, I mean, like not in a dickish way, you know, like it was just saying like, is it irrelevant? Is, right. there, is there any point to me doing this? Like, is it completely over? And right. yeah. like, what do you think of that? Cause like, I do feel like, <laughs> like I'm a white guy and I'm like, they don't want, there's a million of us. Do we need another white guy saying anything? And then I can also feel like so much uh, anger on social media yeah. toward the systemic problem that we were just discussing. But as a white yeah. guy, I gotta be honest. Like sometimes like I, I do wince a little bit. I'm like, Hey, like, it's not me like, you know, and, and, uh, 
you know, we're not all yeah. like this. And then I, I sometimes, <laughs> I sometimes feel, I sometimes feel like people are just like, they fucking just hate white people. They hate white dudes, especially. And I'm like, this feels yeah. like the other side of the same coin sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there are, uh, you know, to, to respond to, to people who are like that, you know, who post things. I I've seen that too. Um, you know, I, I feel their pain if they feel a little irrelevant. We do have, you know, like it's probably a solid hundred years of, you know, writing about the white suburbs. But <laughs> if you figure out how, if you figure out how to do it in a new way, that's really interesting. I don't think, I don't think you're going to be held back because if you look at, like, I mean, I would say so many books about you know the suburbs and marriages are being published every single year. Um, you know, do a good, a good story. I think we'll always get out there. Um, you know, uh, but you know, uh, I, I you just reminded me that, um, I remember I, when I was a graduate student, I had, uh, this, uh, this great teacher, Colin McCann, who's a really great writer too, Irish writer. Yeah. I've, I've talked to him and, on the, on the, uh, show. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And he used to look at some of the guys in here. Uh, in our class and he'd be like you know you white guys are screwed at least i get to be irish you know <laughs> <laughs> to the american right american guys like you got to figure something out you know um but uh you know i don't know maybe it'll push push people more to do different things um but certainly the white male experience isn't irrelevant um and i i don't think you should you know people should feel that way um that might be a little poisonous to think. It might be also paralyzing if you're a writer. Um, make it make it interesting, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, because like uh, I was I was reading. Uh, there's like one of these like photo like you know how the New Yorker does like photo series sometimes where they'll like do like a photographer mm-hmm. will take pictures of like certain things that are thematically related or related to a certain industry or whatever. And they did this mm-hmm. uh, photo series of comedy writers who are now on camera. Did you see this? Oh, no, I didn't see it. Okay, so it's just like a series of black and white photos of, like, uh, Ilana Glazer and Abby Jacobson. I think it's Abby Jacobson. Is that right? The girls from Broad Mm -hmm. City. And then, you know, other, like, comedy writers who wound up uh, kind of creating their own series uh, similar Mm -hmm. to, like, Louis C.K. or whatever. Like, who I think sort Mm -hmm. of – he sort of started this movement where – it's sort of funny because I feel like, oh, you know, Hollywood finally realized, like, wow, comedians and – these people are talented. Just let them make their own shows and like, you know, talk about their experiences. And, uh, right. one of the things that was said in the, uh, in the writing, you know, in the captions or whatever that, uh, corresponded with the photos is that, uh, you know, a lot of the terrain that these people are covering, uh, mm-hmm. has been covered plenty of times before. Like you have Louis CK show, which is, uh, you know, about a guy who's divorced who's, mm-hmm. you know, living single, trying to raise kids. And then you have this uh, show called, what's it called? Like Crashing or whatever, where mm-hmm. the, where the mm-hmm. comedian is. I like, forgot his name. Yeah. yeah, I'm, you know, I'm terrible with names. But anyway, the the point that the that the writer made was that it's all about voice. And yeah. it's all about unique perspectives. So, like, you can tell plenty of stories uh, that cover the same ground as long as you make it yours. And... That sound, yeah. probably sounds like a very obvious point, but it's something that like I sort of found myself cheering for when I read it because, especially within the context of Hollywood, it's always about like we want something new and fresh and th- no, it's already been right. done. You can't like if 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 it's been done like within the last like you know two years, 
a lot of mm-hmm. like producers and agents and managers will like you know shy away from it out of fear that it is um gonna feel redundant you know or that the audience yeah. won't be ready for it but that's such bullshit just let talented yeah. just let talented people tell their stories from their perspectives and if and if they're good enough then it's going to be fine yeah you're you're so right i, I think it 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 all comes down to it all comes down to voice and in that new way to tell it you know um the 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 writers of broad city louis ck they all figured out um new ways to do something inventive ways that we just didn't feel like we had seen before although you know as you describe uh louis show it's sort of like oh yeah that's about a divorce guy um, depressed, you know, um, but I had never seen anything like it before. Um, it's the same thing with, uh, literature and, you know, contemporary, the contemporary novel, you know, um, sometimes it doesn't matter what it's about, um, or who, or what color of skin the, the main character is or gender. Um, it's all about the voice and the, and the, some kind of new point of view that we haven't seen before. I think a good example of, you know, a white male writer writing today um, who is doing something really good would be like Ben Lerner, um, uh, uh, author of leaving the Atocha, the Atoka station. And um, I think 1014 was his last novel. And, um, you know, it is about the white male experience, his first novel in sort of Spain, but I had never heard anybody tell it that way. And it became so incredibly interesting. It's also about a writer. And I always tell myself, Oh, I don't want to read a book about a writer, even though I just wrote one. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, um, it's all about the way it's told, you know, in that that voice. Right. You you can't listen to any of those like trends or trying to like write to the market or any of that. And, um, yeah, and yeah, I, I, you can't, you can't, there's no way to write to the market. Um, is it, was it, was Ben Lerner's second book, 1014? It's a different time. What, what's the time? And now I'm trying to, I'm mad at myself. It for was nothing. the, it was the time that Marty McFly's, um, uh, time machine went back to the future in right. DeLorean, but I'm not sure if it was, I think it was 1014. It could be 1017 or 1004. No? 1004 that's it yeah, is that, is that 1004. what it is okay yeah it's 1004 <laughs> i love uh i love leaving Sorry. the leave it leaving the atocha station as well it's a really good book it's just yeah it's a really good book uh um, so what about like what about uh eastman was personal for you because we talk about voice and we talk about you know putting your yeah. per- personal stamp on things like where did mm-hmm. you where did you find yourself in this book and like why like why did you land here like what was the creative process like in terms of conception yeah, you know, uh, I am very much in this book, and in, in certain ways, this book is closer to me than my first novel was. Um, I think uh, the emotional life of the character is very much um, true to myself. Um, you know, uh, I started writing this maybe a year after I went through this horrendous breakup, and the book, uh, it's no accident that the book starts with. Eastman's uh, wife leaving him and he's kind of down and out. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of just channeled uh, a year of uh, a messy breakup, which everything everybody's been through that sort of experience, but it felt really new to me. And I, I had this new emotional life that I needed to sort of write about. Um, and so that's where I put 
that's what I put personally into the book. And then this uh, this novel stemmed from uh, the idea stemmed from uh, almost eight, probably about eight years ago. I got the chance to go to the Norman Mailer Writers Colony, uh, which was in Provincetown. And um, is everybody uh, is everybody like boxing and stuff or no? That's what I thought. You know, like bring your gloves, you're going to get knocked on the teeth. Um, but the, the, the Norman Mailer like Memorial Octagon, where you're going to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so um, I got out there. It was kind of cool, though. You you get to write in his house. You know, they turned it into a writer's colony. And um, I hadn't read any Norman Mailer up until that point, and I felt kind of like a phony going in. And so I tried to read as much as I could his novels alongside a biography. And I found this really interesting uh, portion of his life in one of his biographies where he um, he was asked by the New York Herald Tribune to go to Vietnam in the 60s um, to write a series of dispatches. He was really excited to do it, but the deal fell apart in like the 11th hour, and he never went. I assumed if he had gone, he might have turned that into a book because he did that with so many of his um, so many of his so much of his nonfiction, and he had a lot of kids and a lot of wives so he had to keep putting books out you know so he would just blow any article he had and maybe that maybe, maybe that's what, maybe that's what i need to do i just need to start having more kids you know yeah <laughs> yeah then you'll be able to write full time <laughs> just procreate just have a full litter and just you have, have no choice kids you gotta keep going um so that's where the story sort of came from it did come from mailer's life um he, ne- he never went to vietnam when he was in his prime um, and he never wrote about it in, in this way. And I just thought, what would that book be like? That would be really entertaining if he had gone uh, to Vietnam to cover the war. You know, so so much of his work, he ends up writing about himself. Yeah. And so uh, I, and I sort of like that. Uh, I like that about him. Um, and that's where the idea of this book uh, came in. So it was just a mashup of what I was going through personally. And um, this uh, this this mailer uh kind of esque story did you go to vietnam did you do like on the ground research i did i did but um my research wasn't i just felt i needed to go there and and be in the places i was writing about you know so uh the extent of my research there was my wife and i um stayed at the continental hotel for a week (laughs) pretty much where i set the novel a lot of it takes place in the hotel so i just sort of was there and you know, did a lot of photos, walked around Saigon, got a feel for the place, uh, the streets. You know, um, it's it's an amazing city, uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, I don't know if you've been, but I have not. Uh, and it, oh, that's a good place for your vacation. I was going to say, maybe uh, maybe we'll spend Christmas in Ho Chi Minh City. There you go. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and just eat your way through the country. Um, but, yeah, going to Vietnam was really um really inspiring uh this is a v this does take place at the end of the vietnam war but it's not really a war novel it's more of a city novel um uh, of saigon uh, at that time do you go to like the saigon museum this this gets back to your obsession with cities so like did you find yourself like reading the history of saigon and yeah i did i did uh you know looking at maps uh kind of reading about the famous buildings in Saigon, looking for locations to, uh, to set things. Um, while I was there, I visited the, um, presidential palace, which is a, 
ends up being a scene in the book um seeing the old um the old uh, US United States embassy building which is no longer the embassy I can't remember what it is now but um seeing all that stuff is really important to me not just in documentaries which I also watched but you know being there was was really nice I was going to say Ken Burns is about to release a big Vietnam uh documentary but uh, I guess too late for your I purposes I know I would have loved to have watch that just, <laughs> just research just slow um, like just like some slow zooms on some like sepia tone photos <laughs> yeah 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 you know they have the he has the best researchers the best people working for him so i'm sure they have just everything you know i can't wait for that i think it comes out at the end of the month well and i think too like the vietnam war <laughs> the vietnam war is interesting because uh it's uh, it was so uh filmed you know there was so much uh like really, mm-hmm. really immersive uh, journalism done, both uh, you know, print and uh, television. So you have a lot yeah. to draw from visually. I'm imagining, like, not all of which is uh, is pretty, to say the least. Yeah, you're right. It was, it was, it was ex- the first televised war, right? Um, and and so covered from all sides. You know, they used to send novelists to Vietnam during the war to. You know, to uh, like James Jones and Mary McCarthy. I think she went to the v- to, she went to Vietnam for the New York Review of Books. Um, they put all these writers in really dangerous places. Well, no, what's the uh, what was uh, what was Ernest Hemingway's third wife's name? Why am I forgetting her name? But she was a uh, war correspondent. She was a war correspondent. Uh, Gellhorn. Yeah, Martha Gellhorn. First name, Martha Ma- Gellhorn. Yeah, yeah, like she was uh, like. We needed. I mean, I guess this still happens here and there, but like maybe that's what uh, writers of fiction need to do to get back into uh, the center of the culture. We just need to go into war zones more often. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, actually, somebody told somebody told that to me when I was when I just started this book. Um, actually, I, I believe it was Norman Mailer's son. I was talking to him, John Buffalo Mailer. Uh, he's he's sort of a friend of mine. I was telling him about my book. And he was like, why are you writing about Vietnam? Why don't you go to Afghanistan? Write about that war. Do it now. I was just not the person to go there. I was like, I looked inside myself and I was like, uh, I can't, I can't possibly go to a war zone. I think that, that that's actually, a, that actually strikes me as a funny idea for a book, a book about a writer who's not cut out for it at all, who has deep reservations, but yet somebody makes yeah. him an offer he can't refuse and he winds up going. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much my book. There you go. So what about, uh, the process of getting the work done? Cause you talk about teaching a lot. Uh, you're married, you've got stuff going on in your life. Like how do you fit, yeah. how do you fit writing in? Are you super disciplined? Like, what does it look like for you? You know, I, I get very disciplined when I'm, uh, I'm working, uh, on a project, you know, in the middle of a book, I think I can, um, you know, uh, I don't have to write every day, um, you know, because I, I teach, I have a job, I have a wife, I have a dog. So it's it's not always possible. But if I can get, a you know, a good three, four days in, you know, per week, couple hours each day, I, I feel really happy and I make I, I can make progress on a on a on a book. Um, you know, really, I remember uh, one of my old teachers uh, used to tell me this is Peter Carey, the Australian novelist. He would tell me just all you need is one to two hours a day. That's it. You know, uh, at the end of a year or two, you'll have a book. 
That's true. I mean, I, you know, Amy Bender, yeah. I always think of Amy Bender because she and I talked on this program uh, many mm. episodes ago, but she had just had twins. Oh, she's great. And she, <laughs> she was telling me that she was like down to like five to like 10 minute sessions mm. whenever Whoa. she could find them. Yeah, she had like, she had yeah. narrowed it down to that. And so I was like, okay, there's really no excuse at this point. Like, yeah. you know, you just, if, if she's writing books five and 10 minutes at a time, then, yeah. you know, anything's possible. And it also strikes me that that's, uh, that's an interesting way to write a book, like five minutes at a time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I bet you would, it would uh, if I tried that, I might come out with a different type of book I might not have written in the normal, uh, you know, longer periods of time. But also, you know, when, when I'm sitting down for several hours, I feel like the good moments when I'm working well, they're only like 15, 20 minutes anyway. Right. You know? And then the rest of the time, I'm just torturing myself to get there. Yeah. But I, like I always call it, like, I, I need like a, a ton of warm up is what I like to call it. Uh, oh, yeah. Where you're sitting there noodling or you're reading, you know, you're reading shit online or whatever it is. And then finally you get down to business. Like, do you have the ability to block out distraction, to focus? Do you have any kind of ADD? Are you a phone addict like I am? Like, do you have that oh, problem? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I have that problem. I have to shut off my phone, which which is usually the last thing that happens. Uh, but I use uh, I use that program, Freedom, which gets you off the Internet um, right. for a certain amount of time. And then, uh, then I eventually, if I'm checking my phone too much, I'll have to shut that down. Um, the Internet is just the enemy of writing you know yeah it's a bad it's a problem and uh yeah. i worry about it with my my kids my daughter's already all, always on her ipad and like we're not policing it well enough i'm failing you know i'm just like uh, oh yeah ruining her like beautiful little brain with all this bull <laughs> all this disney I'm, bullshit <laughs> i'm not there yet but um you know uh it seems like it would be a good teaching tool but it also seems very addictive at the same time. So, well, and I'll tell you too, like the, just the, you know, I, I speak for myself only, but there's just so much going on in life. And sometimes you just, mm. you need your kid to just like leave you alone and just like, you need a minute to get other shit done. So you're like here. Oh yeah. Like watch, watch your iPad. <laughs> yeah. We, we went out to dinner with some friends of ours. They brought their kid, um, great kid. And, um, you know, he's very kind of very hyper I didn't know what was going to happen in the restaurant, but they put him on the iPad and he was an angel See? throughout the entire dinner. <laughs> He's a beautifully trained child. They have that kid. Yeah. He's obedient. It's all you need. But uh, I'll say too, like it's a godsend when you're on an airplane. I don't know what people did with kids on airplanes before there were iPads because, um, yeah. you know, you're just trapped in that seat and it's actually a really yeah. good, it's good. It's good in those moments, but I do worry. I mean, it's just, it's a common conversation, but it's just like, especially for people who are interested in books and writing, um, to maintain, yeah. to maintain some sense of, um, uh, like mental or psychological integrity in an environment that is as, um, fast paced and fractalized as the one that we're living in right now is a real challenge, you know? And mm. I find myself fantasizing about living, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, I find myself fantasizing about living a more contemplative life, mm. you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, just mm. getting away from it all and wondering what would happen to me if I did. Mm. I do too. Uh, lately, uh, my wife and I, we both have the urge to just move to Montana or something. What about, know? she's from, in, she's in from Boulder. Go back to Boulder. She is from Boulder. I would love to go back to Boulder. I feel like I belong there. That's where I went uh, to college. We, we, 
Oh, all right. That's a great. Yeah, so uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado, Boulder, Colorado. What's the name of the school? U C U C U C U. Gotcha. Um, beautiful, beautiful town. It's like yeah. I want to be more near nature. I'm on my phone so so much these days. But then I want to get off. I wonder though that like you know you do have proximity to the city. You have proximity to the world of publishing. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, so it's same, but same, but different. But I wonder if I left, like I've been here so long that I wonder what I'm taking for granted. And I wonder if I left, uh, mm. and, and moved out to the sticks or something like that, if I would, su- it would suddenly dawn on me, like how good I had it. Like then my, <laughs> I can play, I can play games with myself either way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can always go back, you know, yes, you can sir. always rent an apartment back in the city. I guess yeah, I have like a little uh, you know pied a terre, whatever they call it. But um, yeah, <laughs> I feel I feel I can I do remember when I first moved here from Colorado. I remember uh-huh. I remember how much it struck me in Los Angeles how fast everything was moving around me and how noisy it was. Uh-huh. Like it was jarring. Yeah. And I imagine after almost twenty years here now that if I were to move to a, a quieter place, that the reverse would be true. Where suddenly I'd be like, oh shit, They're like this place is like. There's nothing going on. And yeah. uh, it makes me think in college when I was living in Boulder, one of my buddies had grown up in Manhattan on the uh, Upper West Side, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he he would tell me that like he would have friends of his from the city come out to visit him who, you know, they were still living in the city. They'd never left the city. Some of them, like the only place they'd mm. been besides the island of Manhattan was like Florida to visit their grandparents. And right. they would right. co- they would come to Colorado and they would stay and like maybe they would drive up into the mountains to go camping or something and, and they would be freaked out because this <laughs> like like the free, silence yeah the darkness, the darkness right? like someone's gonna yeah. someone's gonna get me you know what i'm saying it wasn't just right, like right. wasn't just like freaked out because it was different it was like freaked out like this is this is scary <laughs> yeah you know city people you know in la and in new york it's true any other city at nighttime is lit up it's like orange you know whatever the color of the street lights are it's uh, it's not dark um and then you go to real darkness i remember that being true also uh it's just pitch black it could be it was scary for me yeah yeah but you can also <laughs> yeah. you can see all those stars it's like that's the thing i miss oh it's beautiful it's the best it's beautiful so do you yeah. think you think that's in your in the cards for you in the future you're going to wind up living somewhere near nature i think so you know i've just talked about how much i love writing about cities and and but i'm getting the urge now that i need a new landscape to to write about you know a new experience and um I, um, Alexandra loves to kayak. Um, it's her favorite thing to do. Uh, we love going on hikes. I think it is in the cards. I want to get out to move a little closer to nature. Mm-hmm. Just waiting for that, you know, that academic job in Maine to open up. I was going to say that, that, <laughs> te- that, te- that tenure track professorship at the <laughs> University of uh, Montana. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all over it. God, you know, that would be, that would be a pretty sweet gig. And, uh, yeah. It'd be interesting to see what would what would happen to your writing, but I feel like you're in a good spot. And like you guys, I mean, what you're one of the five under thirty five, right? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, I'm now I'm over thirty five now, but I still have that award, which is uh, five hundred thirty five. And what? Um, and isn't Alexandra on one of those lists too? Or am I crazy? She is a young. Yeah, I know you're right. She's in New York. Uh, she was in New York Public Library Young Lion. She was nominated for that, which I think you also have to be under thirty five for. 
So you guys, um, are, you guys are like a young literary power couple in Staten Island, New York. Sort of. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> You're like, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in fact, you were, you, you, I don't know if you read this, but you were, it was just announced that you guys were named one of the uh, five under 40 literary power couples in the uh, United States of America. Are you kidding? Yes, I, I am. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, I got to send that to my puppies. Yeah, no, the trophy's in the mail. You'll be getting it shortly. It's, a, it's beautiful. Uh, there are a couple other young uh, literary couples who we have a couple crush on that are around, like Katie Kitamura and Hari Kunzru. Oh, Maybe yeah. have them on the program. I've had, Hari, I've had Hari on. I need to have uh, Katie on. Katie's or, great. Uh, a Separation. That's a great novel. I loved it. Um, and we have, uh, there's Paul Yoon and Laura Vandenberg. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've talked to Laura. So see, okay, now yeah. I, I need to get, I need to get up to speed and make sure that I have both halves of the uh, power couple on the yeah. program. But then there's, I, I've also had Heidi Julevitz and Ben Marcus on. Oh yeah. Heidi Julevitz and Ben Marcus. Yeah. So that would be an interesting, uh, that would be actually be an interesting essay for like lit hub or the nervous breakdown or something where like you mm. just go through and you start to uh, name like the, the hottest literary power couples in America. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so whoever's that is at, a good lit hub article. It is. You should write that. Yeah. That would, that, that's going to get a lot of shares. But yeah. Paul Oster, Siri Hustved. There you go. Yeah. I didn't even know about I, that one. I once, I once house sat for Paul Oster. How was that? Um, and Siri. It was awesome. They have a nice they house. A beautiful, beautiful house in in Brooklyn. I was a I was a young assistant working for Paul's uh, Paul and Series publisher, and um, they were going to Europe for a month, and so uh, I got to just live in this big, beautiful house with this incredible library in the heart of Brooklyn. And um, it reminds me of that uh, Raymond that Raymond Carver short story where, like, I want to say somebody like. Remember the one where the neighbor, like, either is house sitting or has to go, like, get the mail, and then they go in and, like, try on the clothes of, of the people who are gone? <laughs> yeah, of course, you got to do that. I mean, that's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I went through everything in that house. I turned it upside down. <laughs> it's amazing. We're, you and Paul, they're actually the same shirt size. It's, it's uh, wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I still have some of his clothes. <laughs> uh, well, listen, man, I, uh, I have so enjoyed talking with you, and I'm glad that we have gotten to feature, uh, uh, your novel in the book club to shine a little light on it. And Absolutely. I'm glad to now be, uh, you know, at least uh, Skype friendly with the other half of the Alexandra Kleeman literary power couple. Yeah. You, you now have us both. Um, and, and Brad, by, thanks for doing this. It's been great. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. And, and tell Alexandra, cause I don't know if she'll even remember it. Just, just remind her of a very hot and very filthy garage in Los Angeles. And I think it'll probably all come flooding back. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, you did it in person. That's yes. amazing. Yes. Okay. She'll definitely remember that. That's great. <laughs> all right, man. Well, listen, congratulations and good talking with you. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. There you go. That is Alex Gilvery. His novel Eastman was here is available from Viking, the official September pick of the nervous breakdown book club. For more information on the book club, go to thenervousbreakdown.com. You can find Alex online at alexgilvery.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His uh, handle there is uh, Gilvery. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. If you would like to uh, peruse his personal photos. Eastman was here. Go get your copy. 
Uh, go get the app, the Other People app. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Follow the show on Twitter at otherppl. What else? Guilt. It's a good topic of conversation. Vis-a-vis uh, Eastman was here. Like the whole uh, Herzogian midlife crisis stuff. Feels of a piece. How do we expect so much of ourselves? We need to lower our standards. <laughs> so let's like tamp this down a little bit. Quit being so fucking ambitious. That can't be the right attitude, can it? Where's the sweet spot? Just want to find the sweet spot. Where are the gorillas? The metaphorical gorillas in my life. Sweet little gorillas. Bond with a gorilla in the jungle. Learn how to be human. Doesn't sound like such a bad deal. Happy uh, Labor Day week. You had a short week. Good for you. We need more holidays in this country. I'm pro-holiday. I'm pro-chimpanzee in the wild. Pro-gorilla. More gorilla, less guilt. It's weird with Alex Gilberry and uh, Alexander Kleeman being married. I wonder if they had to negotiate, like, who gets Alex? Because he could be Alexander Gilberry. She could be Alex Kleeman. They trade off? I forgot to ask him that. I'll have to follow up in a subsequent interview.